Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and this is our Arcana Advances. Follow along as we explore all renal research happenings at Arcana Laboratories. Hello, welcome to Arcana Advances, where we discuss exciting new research in renal pathology performed by our very own physicians. I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and today we have Dr. Nick Cossey, who will be discussing his recent review article in Seminars in Diagnostic Pathology titled, A Diagnostician's Field Guide to Crystalline Nephropathies. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cossey, and here's the paper right there. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So... As the kidney provides filtration of blood, it makes sense that certain substances that are excreted can form casts or crystals. And this is a review article where you discuss crystalline nephropathies, which are often associated with systemic conditions, either known or unknown. Therefore, they can provide extremely valuable clinical information. So let's go through the most common types of crystals. Sure. So let's start with calcium-based, and these are the most common types of crystals that we see, right? So there's calcium phosphate and calcium oxalate, right? right? So can you describe, describe those, what they look like under the microscope? Sure. So I think the most obvious difference in the two is that calcium phosphate crystals are purple in color. Or hem- they stain with hematoxylin more, whereas calcium oxalate crystals are optically clear under routine light. Um, another main difference is calcium phosphate crystals do not show birefringence under polarized light, where calcium oxalate crystals do show birefringence under polarized light. It makes them really easy to find if you polarize, right? It does. Yeah, they're much easier. If you ever need to count them, they're much easier as well. Yes. <laughs> So can you talk about the etiology of calcium phosphate crystals? Sure. So calcium phosphate crystals can come from a multitude of different things. It can be systemic conditions or it can be localized kidney um, kidney factors. So hyperparathyroidism, milk alkali syndrome. I mean, there are numerous underlying etiologies for calcium phosphate. As far as within the kidney, in patients that have significant tubular injury, you also get more nidus for crystal formation. So sometimes, even in a person that may not have an underlying systemic illness, they can develop crystal or calcium phosphate crystals in the absence of that systemic illness if they have acute tubular injury. And you also see these in like tumor lysis syndrome and those sorts of things, right? Rapid turnover. You do. Yeah. So anything, basically anything that is putting out too much calcium or phosphate in the blood um, and including things like tumor lysis that has rapid turnover can cause these. And in children, it's pretty rare, right? It's very rare. You don't see calcium phosphate very much in children. There are some genetic etiologies, you know, something something like dent disease. You can mm-hmm. sometimes see rare calcium phosphate crystals in those as well. But you should think genetics if you see a lot of you that should. in kids. Yeah. Um, and why is it important to diagnose? Calcium phosphate is a, is a bit of a, a difficult situation because one or two crystals may not mean very much, whereas a lot of crystals, we typically call that nephrocalcinosis, right? And mm-hmm. that can be important. The main thing is that over time, if you have consistent deposition of these crystals, it can lead to progressive reduction in kidney function and can lead to CKD. Um, I think with this particular article, as you see, it's in Seminars of Diagnostic Pathology. One of the main audiences, or I hope one of the main audiences of this, are surgical pathologists that are looking at nephrectomy specimens mm-hmm. as well. You know, a lot of times things like crystalline nephropathies are pretty easy to overlook if you're not looking for them. But if you happen to find them, that's a really important thing for the patient. Yeah, that's very true. 
So let's move on to calcium oxalate. So you discussed how they're clear and polarized, but what's the etiology in calcium oxalate crystals? Sure. So calcium oxalate crystals, first, they can come from underlying primary factors, right? So that is one etiology, but that's not typically where we see them from on biopsy. That's really rare. Um, We more commonly see them in patients that have either some sort of exogenous exposure to oxalate, whether they're eating really high oxalate foods, or there are a few drugs, very rare and very uncommon, that can be associated with it. Um, Another, I think, more common association is when you have significant shifts in GI motility. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the classic is Mm RUMY procedure, right, which that's been well documented in the literature. Just anecdotally, I also feel like sometimes in patients that have things like pancreatitis and are having chronic diarrhea, these patients can sometimes develop it as well. Um, It seems that there is, you know, while there are some patients that develop this, there are many more patients that have some of these underlying factors that do not develop them. So it seems like there is some sort of underlying factor that is predisposing a certain group of people to them. But to date, nobody's been able to prove that or nobody's been able to actually report on what it is about some people that when they get chronic diarrhea or they eat high levels of oxalate while they're producing crystals. There are some papers, actually quite a few, about oxalobacter formagens, and some people really oh. believe that that's associated with some of this as well, which it likely is. But I don't know if that, I don't know if that is all of what we're missing in the, in the conversation. And that's like the gut microbiome exactly. bringing all this in. Yeah, it's a really hot area of research right exactly. now. Yeah. yeah. And depending on the cause, right, will Mm -hmm. sort of lead you to how these patients will do over time. Leading to the call, yes. As far as do we have a a strongly validated finding, morphologic finding or stain or something that will tell us how these patients will do long term? We don't, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The main thing is what is the level of chronicity in the biopsy when you get it? I believe that the actual load and obstructive nature of the crystals may have something to do with this. That's a pretty consistent theme among crystals and casts. When you have large amounts of crystals or casts in the kidney that are obstructive in nature, you tend, in my opinion, to have a a worse outcome. Um, But in the end, I think that while, you know, some people may have their opinions and we, we may know some basic factors... In the end, I don't think it's it's easy to predict how these patients will do. I've had I've had patients that my prediction would have been completely wrong with what I know their clinical outcome was. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to dysproteinemia related crystalline nephropathies. <laughs> these can be seen in the setting of multiple myeloma, lymphoproliferative disorders, MGRS. So um, this diagnosis is really significant because it can trigger a hematologic workup, especially without history. Right. So let's start with light chain cast nephropathy, which is likely the most common of these, right? Probably, yes. And it's often not crystalline, but there is a crystalline variant. Can you talk about that? There is. You know, interestingly, I remember my first exposure to the crystalline variant of light chain cast nephropathy. I was actually a fourth year resident (laughs) and was reading one of those review study books. And I believe Degati and Markowitz had written the chapter And it had an image that had a brightly eosinophilic crystal in a tubule, and it asked what the diagnosis was. Uh And I remember looking at that and having no idea what that was. Of course, at that point, I'd been interested in renal path. I had done a couple of rotations, but I had always seen the typical PAS negative refractile fractured cast with cellular reaction for light chain cast nephropathy. I'd never seen the actual crystalline variant, and that's what it was, was the crystalline variant. Now, as you said, typically that is not the variant of light chain cast nephropathy that we see. It's mm-hmm. very rare. I mean, I have maybe seen a handful of cases in my career, 
But when you see it, it typically has geometric figures of the crystals. Um, they can be clusters of small crystals. They can be large rhomboid structures as well. Um, they typically are hyper eosinophilic and bright, and they are typically not birefringent under polarized light. Mm -hmm. IF should be kappa or lambda within those crystals, though, correct? Anytime that you have a light chain that's forming a crystal, there is a subset or a minority subset of those that will not show staining on routine immunofluorescence. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody knows the exact reason why that's the case. I think there's a lot of really good theories. But regardless, it should typically show kappa or lambda restriction. If it doesn't, if you do retrie antigen retrieval from paraffin tissue and then do immunofluorescence, they do, they do stain for kappa or lambda. But they should be restricted. You shouldn't have a mixed kappa and lambda staining pattern. So sometimes they're masked, but right. And I think I've run into this clinically before, where um, you get the tall blue and you realize there's crystals all right. over, <laughs> which um, something we should talk about too. They really pop out on the tall blue stains, so you can see all these beautiful crystalline shapes. And of course, on EM, right. It, but sometimes it can surprise you if they're masked. It can, you know, especially the if you have small crystals. Um, it can be easy to overlook them, but you're right. On tall blue, they are strongly, strongly dark blue, and they really do pop out. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things. I think that nowadays, most everyone that is reading renal pathology is looking at their tall blue thick sections or their scout sections. Yeah. Um, but for anybody out there that's not, that's actually, the, the tall blue can have a lot of interesting information for a lot of different diagnoses on it. Yes. Very, very true. You want to take a look at those. So let's talk about crystalline type light chain proximal tubulopathy. Sure. And so this presents a little differently from a cast nephropathy. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, light chain cast nephropathy is associated clinically with acute kidney injury. In light chain cast nephropathy, the cast actually are causing tubular injury that is typically abrupt and they'll have, you know, a really noticeable clinical phenotype. Now, when you're talking about patients have light chain proximal tubulopathy, this tends to be a disease that is much more slowly progressive. Oftentimes, the patients have low-level proteinuria of unknown etiology. It's not uncommon that this may happen as any type of light chain disease is more common in an older population. It may be that these patients already have a small amount of underlying CKD. So it can very easily clinically mask as, oh, this is a person that's just slowly progressing with their natural CKD from diabetes or hypertension or whatever. Um, however, over time, it does cause tubular injury. Over time, it will cause scarring of the kidney and, and significant loss of renal function. But instead of being acute, it's just more progressive. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. So it can be a little bit harder to pick up right. clinically. Often these patients aren't biopsied, unfortunately. Right. And on IF, these can also be masked, right, like you were talking about? They can. And, you know, whereas in a crystalline type of light chain cast nephropathy, they tend to be large crystals in the tubular lumens that are very obvious. Crystalline light chain proximal tubulopathy, if you don't know what you're looking for mm -hmm. or you're looking really quickly, you can easily overlook it. You know, typically if you look at a PAS stain, if you have a lot of crystals, the cytoplasm of the tubules will be very frothy looking, very light pink in color. It doesn't have the standard look that you expect. And so when you do that, you can look on something like the trichrome, and it's, it's much easier, at least for me, to see these crystals on trichrome. 
And then yeah, just they a, pop out like a, a pinkish. They do a pinkish reddish mm-hmm. color, right? So you you tend to be able to see them more easily on trichrome. But even if you miss both of those, if you're looking at your tall blues, oh. they I mean it is very difficult to miss a intracytoplasmic crystal if you have a significant amount of them on a tall blue. Yes, it really looks beautiful. On it tall really blue. is. Yeah, <laughs> it's very striking. So let's move on to crystal storing histiocytosis. Ah. This is a really rare paraprotein-related yes. <laughs> disease. It doesn't always involve the kidney, but it can. And can you describe this disease a little for us? Yeah, so crystal-storing histiocytosis is basically exactly what the name says, right? You have light-chain crystals that are being uptaken by macrophages, and they get either stuck or cannot be processed, or the macrophages are overwhelmed. And so you get these crystals within macrophages. Um, This is a really, really rare disease. I've only seen one case of this in a decade. I mean, it's just, it's not something that you see see very often. a lot of cases here, too. (laughs) Yeah, so this is one that, you know, you're likely not to run into. But just as you said, this disease, while while it definitely can be seen in the kidney, it's not exclusive to the kidney. You can see it in other organs. Typically, what you'll see in the kidney is it depends on the load. You know, if you look in a textbook, you're going to see extensive, large clusters of, you know, monocytes and macrophages. And yeah, so it's very easy or it looks very easy in a textbook. But those are obviously the the great examples, right? I feel like the, in the in the case that I've seen, there were smaller clusters of histiocytes mm-hmm. that were very frothy and very foamy, um, very kind of lacy in appearance. And then again, you can see on trichrome or other stains, you can you can see the crystals more easily. In do these. they pop out, or do you really have to look for I them? I think you I think you have to kind of look for them. It's very easy, you know. It's very easy for them to be confused with foam cells as well. Yeah, because they have a similar appearance. And if you don't have large clusters of them, you just have one or two sporadically. I think that would be very easy, especially in a proteinuric patient, to overlook that. Oh, yes. Yeah. You have to have a high index of suspicion for that. Do they usually have systemic disease as well to cue you in to look for it or no? Usually they do. Yeah. I mean, this is usually a, a systemic multi-organ disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and these patients, they, they typically, they're not a patient like we're talking about with light, with light chain proximal tubulopathy that, you know, they just seem completely normal, but a little bit of proteinuria. These patients are oftentimes pretty sick and there is something going on that people are having a hard time ferreting out what it is. Okay. So yeah, I do think this is one of those, I do think this is one of those, the clinical history can help. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to crystalloglobulin and cryocrystalloglobulin. Oh, yeah. So did I pronounce those right? Because those are pretty good. I, I think you did. <laughs> I'm sure if you mispronounce it, I would as well. So. so this can be a complication of multiple myeloma, luckily rare. But can you talk about it a little bit, about what it is? Sure. So previously, all of the crystalline diseases that we've been talking about are actually we're finding these stored within cells, right? Mm-hmm. Within the kidney, within a tubular epithelial cytoplasm or within a tubular lumen. Yes. Crystal globulin and cryocrystal globulin are actually where you're getting crystals forming in the vasculature of the patient. Now, this is this has a very different clinical picture than most of what we've been talking about. These patients tend to be incredibly, incredibly ill. Mm-hmm. They're typically in the ICU. They're typically doing poorly. You know, and why is that? Well, if you think about it, if you're forming microcrystals throughout your vasculature, 
with every systole, they're being pressed, hitting endothelium, causing mm. injury. So it, it in many ways looks like a vasculitis, right? Yeah. Now, in the actual biopsy, what you typically see are small crystals within the intracapillary space within glomeruli. That is typically what you would see with a crystal globulin. So more than in the larger vessels, but in the small capillary, yeah. they're getting pushed in and kind of stuck there. Right, exactly. Oh, wow. And this can cause thrombosis, right? It can, it Basically. can. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I'm glad we don't see that that much. <laughs> I know. You know, it's, it's very interesting. We have seen a few of those cases. I think that it's rare, but it is something you occasionally will see. Mm -hmm. Well, our time is running short, but I wanted to just sort of look over. You have a lot of other rare birds that you sort of discuss in this article, right. which is a great review for people um, to check out. And these include metabolic disorders and drug-associated crystalline right. diseases. And is there anything um, of these last few things you discuss in the article that is um, is one of your favorites that you really enjoy? <laughs> sure. So I guess I guess there's a few. I mean, with urate nephropathy, I think that of all of these would be probably the most common, mm -hmm. right? Um, and these typically are just, you know, a lot of people, an older name might be, you know, gouty tophi in, the, in yes. the medulla, right? And so that can be a cause of renal dysfunction. And I think that's one that if I'm, if we're talking to the surgical pathologist that's looking at nephrectomy specimens, uh -huh. that's one that they're more likely to potentially see and catch. So I think that's one that's interesting. And I also think, especially when you get ones that have the stellate appearance and the oh. multinucleated giant cells, they're just, they can be very pretty, or at least I think they're pretty. Yeah. Um, 2,8-dihydroxyadenuria, also, that's a very interesting one. Um, the most, I think the most or important thing as far as morphologically on that is those crystals stain with silver on jones methenamine silver. Um, most crystals do not. That's a very, mm -hmm. very uncommon finding. And you see that in 2,8-DHA. You also can see that just as a, as a red herring, you can see that in patients that are undergoing triamterine therapy mm. as rare. So that's a foil for that one. Um, and then the other, you know, that I think is kind of interesting is methotrexate. You know, we don't really see that now. I've mm -hmm. never seen a case of that. I don't think that you will see cases of that most likely. But if you look in the old literature um, before when they were giving people, it always occurred when they were giving people IV methotrexate in high doses. Oh. Right? And I think it became a known complication many, many years ago. And so they altered how the drug is actually pushed. And so I don't think you'll see that very often, but I think that old literature is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that's nice that the kidney findings then went back and changed clinical practice. Yeah. Thank you so much for putting this review together. It's excellent. It's excellent writing and the pictures are gorgeous. So I really encourage everyone to check it out. It's a good resource to keep in your desk too <laughs> when you have these complicated crystal cases. Um, so... Thank you so much, Dr. Cossie, for coming on the podcast and discussing your paper. And for more research happenings at Arcana Laboratories and other information, visit us online at arcanalabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Arcana Labs. You can follow me on Twitter at Rebecca May underscore RP. Where can people find you on Twitter? Sure. So I'm at the good MD. Oh, that's a wonderful name. All right. And also you can um, Feel free to check out the paper, and if you have any questions, you can reach out to Dr. Kasi at Arcana, or um, right. your email is in the paper as it well. Is. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes Store. 
For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.